All right. I'm not going to waste any more of Paul's time. I'm just going to bring him up here. So we love Paul. If, you, if you're here and you, were, and you heard Paul last year, he was awesome. If you are here last night, awesome as well. If you are here late last night, we'll talk about that later. I'm just, I'm just glad to have uh, Ben and Mark and Justin implicated with me in the... Uh, <laughs> The night they brought Pure Grace Church down, so, so go, go forever and ever. So yeah, that, well, I record, I recorded it as well, so we'll. Uh, I'll, I'll pray about it. <laughs> no, I will. I, I do. I've been posting Q and A's from uh, across the country, and they're getting better and better and better. People are uh, people are getting more brazen and more bold. Good morning, church. It is so good to see you. It's good to be back this morning after an awesome night last night, and uh, it has been a good weekend. I want to honor Pastor Mark for the word yesterday, and uh, you, you bless my heart, you, you, not only your delivery, but your heart for the people and your passion for the word. Uh, I enjoy, I've always enjoyed hearing good word presented well in a way that feels as if someone cares for you and is cultiv- in good cultivated soil, you know that's gonna, something's going to happen. And I, I'm so appreciative of that, and I'm honored to have been a part of this conference with you. To Pastor, thank you so much for the invitation to come back this year, for opening your pulpit and your church and your heart. I appreciate your spirit and your humility. Your deference is honorable. I know what you feel. Uh, the son of a pastor who was an evangelist. So I was always around ministry and my father's friends and the guys he would bring in to do revivals and meetings. And I honored these giants. I thought they are something. And then I went into the ministry when I was 15, so I was always the kid in the room. And you never really lose that. And you and I are the same age, and I feel the same way. But that is a beautiful thing because I think it will keep you in a place of humility and it'll keep you listening. And we learn more when we listen and and I've learned that, if nothing else. And so I honor that and I just want to tell you that that's a beautiful thing and I think it will mark you for life. And what marks your leader will mark your sheep. And so a church is always going to be a byproduct of their leadership. And so if their leadership is prideful and aloof, that's going to filter down into the church. If their leadership spends time with sheep and smells like sheep, which you should, because a good shepherd should smell like sheep, because he's spending time with sheep, then the sheep will spend time with one another. And that's a community that is strong. And that's what I feel at Pure Grace Church. And I know that must be because of leadership, the heritage of leadership, the current leadership, and great things are in store. And two churches that come together in one community to do so, what appears to be on the surface seamless. Uh, Pastor Ben, to, to, to be a part of that and to see the transition that has been made, I honor that because I think that is worth honoring. I've seen, I've seen in, in an era where more churches are, close, churches are closing every day, some of them need to close. And being very honest, some of them need to close. They are depositories of performance and works, and they're stressing people out, and they're making God look bad. And I wish they would stop having service. <laughs> but there are other places where it, it's, I, it's, it's a tragedy to watch them close because the, the lives were being impacted and people were being blessed and lives were being changed. And so to see in an era where churches are closing, to see two come together is, is uh, beyond words. And I, I'm, I think it's the, probably the fulfillment of someone's prophetic word into both places. And uh, the, that fulfillment will continue. And so I honor that. Are you ready for word today? Yes. Praise God. All right. Listen, I, I don't think that you have to honor and respect every voice that goes out into the world. I think you live in a society that has tried to tell you that everybody is worth, worth your respect. And the reality is, is that human life is worth your respect. People have dignity and they should be shown the dignity of being able to live their lives. But not everyone is worthy of your respect. Some people are jerks. You need not respect a jerk. That part you can amen to. 
You need not honor a jerk. You need not honor someone who is abusive. You need not respect someone who molests, someone who beats, someone who is violent, someone who tries to overrun you with their power and intimidate. Why should they get your respect? We respect human life. We don't always respect what is the extension of that life to us. Because of that, we should not give the same respect to every voice in our life. We have to make a decision. Some people's opinions ought to matter more than other people's opinions. My father can tell me something, and to me, my father has a right to tell me anything he wants to. And if I don't like that, he'll be sure to tell me that he has the right <laughs> to tell me anything that he wants to. I'm here partially because of him. And so if my dad gives me advice, that's an opinion I probably ought to listen to. That doesn't mean that I do. But I probably ought to pay more attention to it than a total stranger. Our social media world has sort of warped this perception a little bit because we try to be respectful and give honor to every opinion. And how many of you realize you can't do that in the anonymous world of social media? If you start giving everybody equal respect, you're going to end up confused and frustrated. Not everybody's voice deserves your time and your attention. You have to have a baseline understanding that we agree on some of the same things. Otherwise, we're not going to have much of an intelligent conversation about something. If you're a flat earther, you and I are probably not going to get along in in regards to whether or not the earth is round or flat. And that is not a good baseline for us to start a conversation with. Therefore, as far as what you think is happening when the sun sets, I don't honor your opinion. Okay, now, that... (laughs) And I realize that that has actually become a thing enough that someone just got offended. (laughs) Now, for the offense, I apologize, but I I, I still don't think that there's worth honoring every opinion. And so I think that's obvious in life that not every opinion should matter, not every thought should matter. I was praying early this morning about that thought. The Holy Spirit put that in my heart about 1 o'clock this morning uh, to, to open this morning with that idea so perhaps there's someone who's been, infu- been influenced by various opinions. 1 John 4 opens with, Try the spirits to see who they be of, for not every spirit is of God, for there are false prophets who have gone out into the world. And try the spirits. We, I used that in my own life and ministry and in my own Bible scholarship for a long time to think that what he meant was, Always see if there's a demon behind something or if it's the Holy Spirit. You know, maybe it's demonic and maybe it's God. Well, that's not a very good explanation because that means the Holy Ghost and demons move pretty much exactly alike and it's really hard to tell. You've got to test them to find out if it's the Holy Ghost or a demon. I don't know who you're giving more or less respect to there. Demonic powers or less respect to the power of the Holy Spirit. The problem is in the Greek there's no real way to tell because it's pneuma. It's all spirit and That word even means to breathe, to breathe out. And so it's not just the Holy Ghost. It could be anything. So I don't think that John means try the spirit in someone and see if they're demonic or they're full of the Holy Spirit. I believe the word he uses there, try, means to prove worthy, to deem it worth your respect. So try every voice that comes into the world and see if it's worthy of your time and attention. And if it's not, ignore it. Because there are some people that are speaking falsehoods into your life and you shouldn't have any part of it. So try the voice as it comes at you and try that voice and test it against a litmus test. Does it bring righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? Does it meet baseline requirements in your life for you to have a conversation with? And if it doesn't, move on. It doesn't mean you disrespect the life of the individual, but but the words they speak are not worth your respect. We do this in ministry all the time. We just do it so quickly we don't realize we're doing it. And that is, if someone gets up and speaks against the baseline understanding of our faith in Christ, we ignore everything else they have to say. So if a guy gets up and opens with, I don't really think Jesus raised from the dead, we don't care if the next point would have changed our life, we're done, and we should be, because we disagree on the baseline Jesus raised from the dead. You've immediately dismissed the voice. Probably a good time to dismiss that voice, right? Now, I don't know what time that is for each person. But, but you will because that's your job. And so it's not all about laying back and not being active. There are some very proactive things about being God's children. One of those things is to get to test those voices, that breathing out in your life. What does it do to me? What does it say to me? What, kind of, what effect does it have on me? Well, we get the honor of doing this from the other side of the resurrection. Christ having died, went to the grave, comes out of the grave, ascends into heaven, 
descends into our hearts. That's a part that often gets missed when people start talking about the incarnation of Christ and the advent, is they almost always stop with the ascendant and sit to the right hand of the Father. Well, what does that mean? That's not some big throne room somewhere where Jesus right now is literally, and I'm going to break someone's theology, this big room where Jesus right now is sitting on a throne and God's at his left hand and Jesus is at God's right and they look at one another and wink and smile when you come up and pray. And they're always having a massive courtroom battle and, and between this devil who's running in and out to and fro and, and Jesus is defending you in front of the Father because of the blood. These are just metaphors. It doesn't mean there's a big throne room somewhere on a planet on the other side of Saturn where Jesus is interceding on your behalf. It means that he's the king equal with the Father. You sit at the Father's right hand because you are the Father. You are the King. Christ on the throne room of your heart. And so I believe firmly that Christ is alive inside of us. This was the mystery that had been shut up from the ages, but was revealed, Paul said in Colossians, through the Gentiles, that Christ could live in a man and that Christ was the hope of glory. Now that doesn't even seem like a mystery to us. It shouldn't. We're 2,000 years on the other side of Pentecost where Christ lives in us. But for the early church, it was a mystery that Christ could live in men. Because Christ means the anointed one. He's a figure. He's a person. They were waiting for him and they believed they had found him in a man named Jesus. Anointed beyond measure. And so for them, Christ, wrapped up in a man named Jesus, had come. So to say Christ could be in you, well, that's mind-blowing. That means that the same Jesus they saw with their eyes and they touched in the flesh disappeared Moved from one dimension into the other. Shed his body so that his soul, spirit, this is mind-blowing, so that his spirit could return at Pentecost and live inside of you. Now, that's, that's probably a baseline argument in moving forward, especially in how we read the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is full of, and I like how Mark opened yesterday talking about good advice and good news. The Old Testament's really full of good advice. It's pretty good advice, don't lie, don't steal, don't lust after your neighbor's stuff, don't murder, good advice. It's not all good news, none of it transforms you. How many of you know if you don't steal, it doesn't make you a new creation because you didn't steal? That's the whole point, the law can't transform you. However, how many of you know that good news preceding good advice can make the good advice even better? For instance, if you hand $5 to your kid and say, hey, here's five bucks in the toy section, don't spend it all in one place, that's good advice. In today's economy, it's pretty tough advice, <laughs> right? And uh, so good advice still pretty much ignored and pretty much irrelevant. But don't spend it all in one place is good advice if you just won the lottery, $500 million, don't spend it all in one place. Good advice. Feels even better after good news, doesn't it? <laughs> and I think that's what happens with, even with the law, with, with the performance standards of the law. Take away the performance to be and put in the performance out of and the good advice on the other side of good news, Christ lives in you the hope of glory, the good advice starts to mean something. Good advice, don't lie. Well, I'm a new creation. It would be a bad thing to lie. I would create some chaos in my life I don't want to have to deal with. Good advice on the backside of good news, awesome thing. So we get to filter through the good advice of the Old Testament. And how many of you know there are a lot of time-stamped things in the Old Testament that aren't yours? Time-stamped meaning they're going to happen. They're going to happen soon. They're going to happen someday. Stop looking for them. Okay, so when Isaiah tells you, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. You don't need to start the church of looking for the virgin to conceive. She's already conceived. That prophecy isn't for you. Now you can celebrate it because you see Jesus in it, right? But it's a time stamp prophecy. It actually has happened. It doesn't need to happen again. There's no dual fulfillment. God's not looking to do this twice. The virgin has conceived, brought forth the son. Praise God, that's it. So you can read some things in the Old Testament and realize that they are time-bound, time-stamped, even covenant-stamped promises, things that are going to happen inside the confines of an Old Covenant. And there are other things that transcend the Old Testament. Man, they are farther and broader and brighter and they shoot higher than anything the Old Testament had to offer. And they're completely out of place. David sends with Bathsheba and says to God in Psalms 51. 
if you wanted sacrifices, I would give them. But you don't want sacrifices. You want a contrite heart and a broken spirit. And David did not have any scripture behind that prayer. There wasn't a single verse in the old Torah, in the, in the Pentateuch, that said, God doesn't want your sacrifice. God wants your contrite heart. And yet David is praying beyond his own covenant. He's shooting forward. <laughs> he's grabbing a Jesus from another covenant and he's praying it into his timeline. You get to see that because you're on the other side of the resurrection. David couldn't have seen that. How, did he, how in the world did he see that? That's the beauty of the Holy Spirit alive within these, sprinkled within these pages of the Old Testament. And you get the glory of going back and finding some of those. So to start today, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. And I know after that big introduction, you expect to open in the Old Testament. Well, we will end in the Old Testament, but open in the New, because I want you to see that I believe the early church writers shared what we just said. They shared the idea that sprinkled throughout the Old Testaments were depositories of grace, and that it's the honor of the believer to go mine those depositories find them and then apply them into your life. And that if you would do that, you would be blessed. And you would be prospered and you would be the better for it. First Peter chapter 1, and just a disclaimer, this is a chapter that has really burned on my heart lately because on our Deeper Daily podcast, we're working our way verse by verse through the book of First Peter. And when I do that, sermons start to come alive. I, I I see things I had never seen. And, and full disclosure, the three verses I'm going to read to you out of 1 Peter this morning are three verses that had no major impact on my spirit until I started the DDP on 1 Peter. And as I began to dig into them and do these little podcasts every day, I began to see the power behind what Peter was saying. And I think these are three of my new, my f- new favorite verses in the Bible, and I have about 5,000 of those. You'll hear me say that in many sermons. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And I listen to my next sermon and go, well, I guess you changed your mind in a week. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Take a look at that last phrase, the grace that would come to you, the words that would come. Some translations probably dropped them. New King James italicizes them because they're not in the original Greek. They were added by scribes to try to complete the sentence. I don't like them. Read it as it read in the Greek. They searched carefully and prophesied of the grace to you. That's how Peter closes the second verse of this chapter. That's how Paul opens almost every book of his New Testament. Grace to you. Grace and peace to you. A proclamation of grace. But did you notice in this 10th verse, Peter is saying, prophets, who are the prophets? Not the guys in Peter's day, but the prophets that came before Peter. Prophets inquired and searched carefully. That means they opened the Torah and they went to work. And they not only opened the Torah and they went to work, they opened their spirit. They gave credence to the voice they were hearing. And we're going to talk about who that voice is in a moment because the next verse is going to tell us. They, were, they paid credence to the voice that they were hearing. They heeded its call. And then they mined out a prophetic word of grace that there's grace coming to a new generation. So they spoke forward out of their era into another era, grace coming in another generation, searching what or what manner of time, the spirit of Christ who was in them. I want to repeat that. I want to say it slowly. I want to make sure we understand that we're talking about Old Testament, guys. The spirit of Christ was in them. When is Christ? Old Testament or New Testament? Both is absolutely the correct answer, but do you see the word Christ in the English in the Old Testament? No. You don't don't catch that until we get to the New Testament. The Spirit of Christ, the Anointed One, Christos, alive and well in the Old Testament prophets from time to time and in various manners. Well, I think that's a phenomenal thing. I mean, we have Jesus, the Christ, coming on the scene in the book of Matthew, and yet Peter says the same Spirit that was Christ was in Old Testament prophets When they spoke of grace, he doesn't say that the spirit of Christ was in prophets when they spoke of time-stamped prophecies to Israel or when they spoke of prophetic words about what happens if you don't keep the law. But when they spoke of the grace to you, the spirit of Christ was upon them. This tells me that as you search through the Old Testament, you're going to find some things in which it is not grace to you. And you're also going to find some things that is grace to you. 
When you find the things that are not grace to you, there is no spirit of Christ there. When you find the things that are grace to you, the spirit of Christ is there. Pastor, do we ignore the stuff where it is not grace to us? You don't have to ignore it, but just know it wasn't to you. Time-stamped argument. Location and place. Inside of a covenant. You're not in the old covenant. You never were in the old covenant. We're infatuated with something that never belonged to us in the modern church. But that wasn't yours. So where you find the spirit of grace, you have found the spirit of Christ who was in them, indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. This is the fact that the Old Testament prophets who were prophesying of grace, who were full of the spirit of Christ, were prophesying of the Jesus to come and what his sufferings would do. And then watch 12. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering. The word us there is the wrong pronoun in the Greek. It's really to you. Peter personalizes this passage. It was revealed that to them, not to themselves but to you they were ministering things which now have been reported to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. So Peter wraps up this three verse statement by saying this they realized that they were prophesying outside of their timeline they were not going to see the fulfillment of the things they were saying when they started preaching and teaching and prophesying grace they knew it wasn't going to happen while they were alive the holy spirit inside of them the spirit of christ inside of them even spoke to them that they were prophesying ahead of themselves way past themselves to you and to you it's to the audience of peter who have been hearing about a man named Jesus and a sacrifice at Calvary and a resurrected Savior and an ascended Jesus and a descended Jesus into the hearts and lives of his people. And Peter says, this isn't a new message. This is a message that's always been in the Old Testament. It's called grace, but you got to go find it. And every time you find it, you're seeing the Spirit of Christ in the Old Testament. And it's so powerful and it's so amazing that angels peek into it. It's that last phrase I find... Even more fascinating. I I love 10. They talk about grace to you. I love 11. They do it with the spirit of Christ. But 12. It's so powerful. It's so amazing. Angels are impressed. Man, what do you got to do to impress an angel? I can't think of anything I could pull off that would impress an angel. An angel is there from the beginning of their creation. Ageless. Praising God. Doing the bidding of heaven. The highest bidding in the universe. They're ministering spirits. They witnessed the incarnation of Christ, the death, burial, ascension of heaven. They were there as the Holy Spirit was being poured out. I've always thought that would have been a cool moment. You're an angel on the balcony of heaven when God tips the Holy Spirit onto the earth. Wow. That's impressive. And yet, we don't get any verses that say angels were really impressed at Pentecost. But 1 Peter, we get a verse that's phenomenal. Angels are impressed angels are impressed that grace to you through the spirit of christ was hidden throughout the pages of the old testament and now gets to be mined by god's children and they are so impressed by that that you get this glorious luxury of identifying with the present power of the holy spirit inside of your life to mine out the grace that is there in the old testament don't ever let someone convince you that grace is a newfangled doctrine that is destructive to the church That is the false last day's message. One of the go-tos of people who misunderstand both eschatology and hermeneutics is they'll use Paul's statement to Timothy that in the last days people shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They'll see people like me who are teaching and not laying back to hide and preaching and pouring salt in the wound and screaming you into hellfire and brimstone and they'll say, see... The teaching is what people want to hear. That's because they got itching ears and they want somebody to coddle their sin. Anybody heard that? That grace message just coddles sin. And yet I don't ever, ever remember coddling anything. Not even sure how to coddle. (laughs) Much less to coddle sin, that'd be like petting a snake. I have no desire to do that. When Paul speaks that to Timothy, what message is Paul preaching? Everywhere he goes, grace. So for Paul to say, people are going to heap into themselves teachers having itching ears, but it's it's not what I'm teaching them, then what would they be teaching? 
They're teaching the old performance standards of Judaism and a return to that. And Paul said their ears are going to itch for somebody to tell them what to do. And you know what? I have found nothing's changed in the church. There is still people that will go to church with their ears itching for someone to tell them what to do. What do I do next? Now I need, I want to go find somebody that'll give me a program. Find somebody that'll plug me in. Find somebody that'll give me advice. Find somebody that will teach me how to perform better than I've been performing. Their ears itch to be taught to go back to performance. And Paul said, that'll be a telltale sign of a problem. So don't let someone lie to you and say that grace is the message that people's ears itch to hear. Grace is the message thirsty souls wish to drink. Parched people who've been starved and dehydrated spiritually in bondage and chains are dying to be released into because it speaks of a God who loves them, who's finished the work on their behalf and who has moved inside. It's grace to you. It's the spirit of Christ inside of you. And it's so big, angels wish they knew more about it. They they peer into this world to see what we're doing with grace. Well, I do believe there is an excitement in the heavenlies for what is happening in the church. How can there not be what father doesn't get excited as his children start to come into their identity? It's a glorious thing to watch your kids grow up into who you hoped they would be and grow into the identity of who they might be as an adult and then go out and be that person on the earth. What an amazing thing and how deadly and sickening it must be to be a father, to watch your children refuse to grow up, never grow up. And there's people that have seen that as well. Watch those chains that keep them bound to being a child in their mind. No one wants to see that for their family. I think the heavens are feeling the liberation of the believer and of the redeemed. But this is not new. It is old. And so if we're going to talk about it being old, we need to go back to the Old Testament and mine some truth. Now, we could do this all throughout the Old Testament. I mean, you can start at the beginning of the book and you can preach Jesus into the Garden of Eden and it's not hard to do. And you can find him at Cain and Abel and Noah's Ark and you can, every one of these beautiful stories have such imagery that leads us to Christ and you could do whole series on it and it's one of my favorite things to do is to go back to the Old Testament and take out some of those stories and examine them under the microscope of the cross and filter them through Jesus that's the statement I'd like I like to use take what you see in the Old Testament and pull it through the cross the resurrection the ascension and the descension of Christ at Pentecost into your life pull it through that event because that's the key event of the Bible So pull everything through that and see what it looks like on the other side. Examine it. Examine it carefully through Christ. You're going to see it mean something here. Pull it through Christ and realize it could mean something else. Some people say, well, that's hermeneutical gymnastics. That's a little bit dangerous. Well, you have to be careful and follow the Spirit, but it's not always going to be obvious on the surface what's going on. I mean, Paul takes Galatians 4. This is just a freebie. I don't mean to throw this in. But Paul takes Galatians 4 and he says, Hagar was of Mount Sinai, which is in Arabia. And if you've ever read the the story of Hagar, there is no Sinai in Arabia until you get to the middle of Exodus. Hagar's in the middle of Genesis. Sinai's in the middle of Exodus. What in the world gives Paul the right to call Hagar Sinai? She's a whole book away. That's because Paul takes Old Testament stories and pulls them through the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the descension of the spirit of Pentecost. And when he gets out the other side, he goes, you know what? I think Hagar's a lot like the law. Well, he came up with that because he mines grace out of the Old Testament. So as you mine grace out of the Old Testament, where are you going to end up? Jesus. And so you're going to get these spiritual comparisons. And so while it does take a little bit of hermeneutical calisthenics, yes, I mean, Paul didn't have the right to do that. I got to think somebody probably called him on it and went, well, I don't know about that. Same way they probably didn't like the fact that the Hebrew was being translated into the Greek called the Septuagint. That probably got some placards and signs and protest outside of the translation hall. Again, don't honor everyone's opinion, right? Just because they took the time to buy a Sharpie and, a, and some glitter doesn't mean they deserve your respect. All right? That wasn't hard to do. That's a $3.50 sign. Right? Go to the book of Zechariah. I want to I mine a little bit of grace. While we could go Genesis to Malachi and mine grace like crazy, That'd take all day long, and this one's going to be long enough. I want to confine myself to one Old Testament book. Zechariah is probably, and I'll probably say it differently if you watch a video on your way, listen to a video on your way home. Don't watch one on your way home. That wouldn't be good. 
you listen to a video of mine on the way home, you'll probably hear me say a different book. But for today, man, Zechariah is probably my favorite Old Testament minor prophet. I'll say minor prophet because, and that doesn't mean minor prophets, major prophets. Quick little Bible study here. Do not, they are not adjectives of importance. Okay, so if we say major prophet, we don't mean this guy was good. When you say minor prophet, this dude just barely made the cut. No, major prophet means that, in some cases it means the message itself was major, but it usually means length of book. It's just, a, you know, Isaiah writes 66 chapters. He's a bit long-winded. And, and long-winded gets translated into major. And so minor is Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is actually a long book. His chapters aren't very long individually, but he's often called a minor prophet. Quick backdrop on Zechariah. Zechariah is a prophet who was told by God to minister to the returned exiles, those who had been taken captive by the Babylonians. And Zechariah ministers to them that they need to rebuild the temple. The temple's been lying in a, in a foundational state for about a dozen years. And this is around 520, 540 B.C. So we're about five and a half centuries before Christ shows up. And we're in that last century before the end of, the, the end of what we call the Old Testament. Malachi would drop about... 400 years before Christ and say so you're in that little that stretch where a lot of us don't have a lot of real good knowledge of history because the minor prophets don't chronolize they don't tell a lot of stories that we can pick up on like the lion's den and, and David and Goliath and these stories we can do time placements and so the minor prophets are uh, this conglomerate of guys who are trying to call Israel back to doing certain things Zechariah's message was hey let's get busy and build this temple why is it still lying here with just a foundation let's do something and so the, the man who picks up the task of building is a guy named Zerubbabel. And some people call that second temple Zerubbabel's temple. And then Herod would sort of come in and remodel that. It would be Herod's temple. So that's a quick little lesson of where we are. Now, Zechariah is not who we think of when we think of grace. I mean, we like Paul. Paul's got some good grace stuff. Maybe the Gospels, Jesus is a grace guy. Peter's got some grace stuff. John's a grace guy. Not sure about James. <laughs> he apparently didn't know how to use the word grace very often. Uh, so we, in Revelation, most of us don't even want to touch that with grace. Who knows, right? But grace, not Zechariah. That's not what we see. However, based on our text from 1 Peter, there were prophets full of the Spirit of Christ who were prophesying grace to you. In the middle of an old covenant world, they were prophesying grace to you. And if you go find them, I think there's some amazing things. Zechariah, let's, I, no way we can do every one of them, and there's no way that, that we could mine out the truth of even the stories we'll give you. But I want to show you grace stories from Zechariah, chapter 3, verse 1. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. The Satan, Hebrew, ha-satan, the ha, proper noun. It's a definite article in front of satan. We pronounce that Satan. And no, I don't recommend you go out and start pronouncing it satan. Because people will just think you're weird or just trying to prove a point. But ha-satan is the adversary literally in the hebrew um, this is an amazing thing we have a character in the bible that we call satan who really morphed over time in the old testament into what i think is a completely misguided idea of dude with a tail and a pitchfork and horns that's running around setting on people's shoulders opposite of their good nature you know and whispering in their ear about doing it so the Hasatan of the Old Testament, the Satan was the adversary. Do you know the first place Satan shows up in the Hebrew? This is surprising. Remember Balaam was told, I think Mark talked a little bit about Balaam yesterday, about how can I curse that which God has blessed? Well, before he had that revelation, he tried. <laughs> he tried to curse what God had blessed. And so he, he's on his way to curse God's people and an angel stands in front of his donkey. He's in, a, he's in a little alleyway, and the donkey can't turn around. And so there's an angel in front of the donkey, and the donkey goes crazy. And Balaam gets off and starts talking to the donkey, and the donkey talks back. 
Remember that? So Balaam starts whipping the donkey because the donkey won't go forward. And the angel speaks and says, what are you hitting the donkey for? I have stood in your way as a Satan. It comes out in the English as adversary. So the angel of the Lord says, I have stood in your way as a... Now, we translators wouldn't dare put that in. They didn't say, I have stood in your way as Satan. They go, whoa, now my theology's messed up. We got to change the whole... Now. So that kind of morphs. In fact, Satan doesn't have the definite article in front of it all until Chronicles. All the usages of Satan adversary, Genesis to Chronicles are... Adversary, adversary, adversary. Then you get to Chronicles and they name him. And the first place is where David numbers the people because he was opposed by the Satan. And we capitalized the S because there we go. Oh, that had to be the devil. That couldn't have been God. And so then that character sort of morphs over time as we go through the Bible. And I'll let you do with that what you will. Right? Because I think your Bible students, or hopefully you at least... uh, attribute yourself to being a student of the Bible, and you can look into that. But in the Zechariah story, there's an adversary, the Satan, who stands opposed to Joshua the high priest. And the Lord said to the Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And God answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Did you notice that God is speaking to the adversary? Peter says, You have an adversary running around seeking whom he may devour. And I think the adversary is not just the the character Satan, though that's definitely categorized in the Old Testament and into the New But the adversary could be anybody who is adverse to you, anybody who is accusatory towards you. So whatever comes against you is an adversary seeking what it may devour. What attention you pay to that voice might give it legs to devour you. What attention you don't pay to that voice might weaken that adversary in devouring you. But Joshua standing before God is being accused. And the adversary is mocking his garments that are covered in filth. And stain, and God doesn't take him outside and kill a bullock or a lamb and sprinkle its blood on him so that he can be purified under the old covenant. Because what you're finding here is a prophet who has mined out a piece of grace. Because in the new covenant world, your Jesus rebukes the devourer for your sake. Your Jesus speaks against the voice of adversaries and accuser. And what does your Jesus do? Your Jesus transforms your garments. He gives you robes of righteousness. He gives you garments of praise for a spirit of heaviness. He takes in hog-slopping prodigals. And he meets them at the end of the gate. And he puts a clean robe on their back and shoes on their feet and a ring on their finger. And he kills the fatted calf on their behalf and he throws a party because my son who was dead is now alive. He who was lost has been found. That is not new to the book of Luke. Zachariah saw it first. That God could transform a man with a snap of his finger. That he could take filthy garments and make them clean. The power of grace is not the power to teach you how to transform yourself or give you the correct list of principles used in the proper order by which if you do them, you will transform your garments. No, the power of grace is to take a man with soiled garments who's wallowed in pigsties, who's fed the the, the lusts of his soul with the filth of the world, and to rebuke the adversary for the sake of your purity. Not because you've read enough, prayed enough, fasted enough, given enough, or went enough. Here's a man who just stands And as he stands in front of the presence of God, God rebukes the adversary for his sake. I love how Paul closes Romans 16 when he says, The Lord Jesus shall crush Satan under his feet for you shortly. That's the adversary. That adversary, that accuser been crushed underneath the feet of Jesus. And again, I don't just think it's some being wandering around in the wilderness, wandering around in this ether of the spirit realm. I think it's every voice of accusation against you. Aren't you glad Jesus, who gives you the gift of no condemnation, knows how to shut your accuser up first? If he doesn't shut your accuser up, you'll believe the condemnation and the lie. A woman is brought before Jesus who's been caught in the very act of adultery. Strangely enough, no man's been caught in the act of adultery that day. That's odd, isn't it? 
Not sure how she pulled off that amazing feat. Not only did she commit adultery, she did it by herself. Even though the Torah says you bring the man and the woman out and you stone them to death. There was no man that day. Maybe he's in the crowd. Maybe he's one holding the biggest rock. That's my theory. It's typically the way it goes, right? Kill somebody else so nobody catches me. They drag the woman and they throw him at, her at Jesus' feet. And they say to Jesus a trapping question. Moses' law says we should stone her to death. What do you say? Jesus knows they're out to trap him. If I say stone her, oh my goodness. She's going to die right here. If I say don't stone her, it's the same way as saying ignore the law. I'm in a rock and a hard place. Jesus reached down and writes in the dirt. We spend all of our theological time coming up with clever sermons on what Jesus wrote in the dirt. And I did too for a long, long time. But as I've started following the Spirit, this is, this is just an aside right here. I didn't intend to be on this. We're in Zechariah, now I'm in John 8. So I'm... As I've started growing in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, and having to live by faith, walk by faith, I've realized that God doesn't always move at my time. I think Jesus wrote on the dirt because he was waiting to hear what the Holy Spirit would have him to do. This is a big moment. I mean, you better be careful about what you say. You don't just fire it out there. And I think we get the wrong impression of Jesus, that Jesus was this robot who just walked around doing and saying what God told him to say. And he wasn't. He was, he was cloaked in the human flesh, and therefore he had his own heritage and his own culture and his own thoughts to filter the voice of the Spirit through, which is what you have. So take some time out of your life and doodle in the dirt before you pick rocks up and kill people. Because you might save someone's life if you keep your mouth shut a little longer. Okay? It's a dangerous thing to have this figured out. And that's one of the things that bothers me, I think, the most about the, me the message of grace is the headiness of, we've got this figured out. What's wrong with those other stupid churches still preaching the law? Maybe bend over and scribble in the dirt once in a while and you'll learn that God has something else to say. And it might be so big to shock you and blow your mind because Jesus' next statement is, kill her if you don't have any sin. So you better listen for the last half. <laughs> or the first half, as it were. I, I didn't mean to get into that. I did mean to get into this. Cast first stone if you don't have any sin. Oldest to youngest, drop the rocks, walk away. Doodle, doodle, doodle. Woman, where are your accusers? I don't have any. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He can't give her the gift of no condemnation if he doesn't shut up her accusers. Because if he gives her the gift of no condemnation while they hold the rocks, it won't hold. If your enemy still has his rock aimed at your head, you're ripe for condemnation. Jesus did not just come to talk you into being a new creation. Jesus came to give you a new robe and silence the Satan standing next to you. Oh, thank God for the cross. The cross and the resurrection whereby your garments have been purified and whitened. Now, we mined that out of Zechariah. Now, we needed some help, didn't we? We needed John 8. We pulled a Paul right there. Grab Hagar and drag her through Sinai. She don't belong in Exodus, but he puts her there because that's what he saw the resurrection did to her. And I think we can do that as we walk through those scriptures of the Old Testament and pull some grace. Back to Zechariah. Look at this one, chapter 4. This, is, this one is famous. Everybody knows this first verse. Verse 6. This is, uh, Zechariah 4, 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power. Probably without even looking you could finish that one. But by my spirit, says the Lord. That was a good Pentecostal verse back in my Pentecostal days. I'm telling you what, God's going to build this church. Man, I can slide right back down into that if I need to. I tell you what, God's going to build this church, and it's not going to be by might. Ring, and it's not going to be by power. Ring, Hammond organ. Yeah. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then somebody take off marching around a building with a banner. You were always one G chord away from a Jericho march. You, you be, 
I mean, you'd be lapping the building in no time. We didn't get a lot done preaching either. There's just a lot of quips and stuff, you know, a lot of cadence. <laughs> it's not by might, nor is it by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I wish we had read on. If we had read on, we might have got to the revelation of grace faster than we did. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. <laughs> Zechariah chapter 4, you realize what just happened? Zechariah hears from God and God says, what I'm going to do, I will not do by your might or by your power. You think you've got some. You think you've got it figured out. You are loaded with spiritual principles. And none of them are going to do anything to bring the mountains down in your life. But if you will speak to that mountain through the capstone, it's a bad word, through the cornerstone. You will speak through to that mountain through the cornerstone and shout grace, grace to it, it'll come down. And Jesus comes on the scene. You know where we're going. We're going to drag that thing through, the, through Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene and says, if you say to this mountain, be thou removed and be cast into the sea and do not doubt in your heart the thing which you say, it shall come to pass. And we went out in our backyard, looked at mountains and tried to throw them into oceans and what, what Jesus was talking about, Jesus was saying, there is no mountain in front of you that cannot be brought down. There is no difficulty, no hill that cannot be brought down by taking it through the cornerstone and applying grace to it. If you go at it by might and you go at it by power, you will never beat your mountain. But if you speak grace to it, grace to it through the cornerstone. Who's the cornerstone? Psalm says, there's a stone coming He's, it'll be the stone that the builders rejected. Paul grabs that psalm and he uses it to the Corinthians. And he says, that stone is Jesus, the stone that the builders rejected. So what stone is it you go through? Not the stone of the law, that's might and power. But the cornerstone of a new temple, a man named Jesus. Grace, grace to it. What should we be throwing at the mountains of our life? A little bit of grace. It's like we talked about last night a little bit in Q&A. We got all these issues, all this stuff. And even in the Grace Church, we still think the way to conquer a lot of this stuff is to put a bunch of restrictions against it. And that's might and that's power. And that'll make you feel good about yourself until you fail. And then it'll make you feel awful about yourself. And you will fail because you can't knock mountains down by might and by power. That's why they're mountains. They're bigger than you. And Jesus says, but they can be spoken against. You don't doubt in your heart and you know who you're talking about. A man named Jesus. Put me on the scene, he says. Shout grace, grace to it. Caris, caris. Favor of God. The favor of God to deliver. And that's Zechariah. That's not the Gospels. That's not Paul. We're mining out grace to you and angels peer in and go, wow. Zechariah chapter 6, verse number 12. Speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Who's this? The man whose name is the branch. Pontius Pilate gives you one of the best scriptural fulfillments, and it doesn't, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be someone full of the Holy Ghost. To give scriptural fulfillment. Remember what Caiaphas said it would be, in John 11? It would be better for one of us to die than all of us to die. Well, that was gospel. Caiaphas didn't even know what he was saying. Pontius Pilate pulls Jesus out on a balcony and says, do you want this guy, Barabbas, who's a murderer? Or do you want this guy in whom I find no fault? And the crowd says Barabbas. But how does he introduce them? He says, here's Barabbas. Behold the man, Jesus. I've always loved that. Behold the man, Jesus. Paul grabs that in the epistles and says we've been delivered by the man, Christ Jesus. I don't know if Paul knew he was quoting Pilate, and I don't know if Pilate knew he was quoting Zechariah. But Zechariah 6 says there's a branch coming, and he's the man. 
And you, that's not just metaphorically, that's literally. He's the man. Paul would even call him the last Adam. He's the last man in the earth. You got 10 seconds for an oversmattering. 10 turns into five minutes. You got 10 seconds for an oversmattering of the gospel of grace. I think according to the New Testament, Paul said, Jesus came as the last Adam. Why did Jesus come as the last Adam? Because the first Adam screwed it up and the whole Bible chased us. God walks us out of the garden and chases us. That's the whole Old Testament. And in Jesus, God gives his best game plan. I'll wrap myself up in an earth suit and I'll become one of them. Jesus hangs at the cross. And this is one of the most poignant moments. Jesus hangs at the cross, stares up into heaven, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we've always put that on the crowd. You know, we've always said Jesus was forgiving the crowd. We get into discussions. Did they all go to heaven? I've heard people get real serious questions about stuff like that. Did all those people go to heaven? Because Jesus said, Father, forgive them. None of them even asked. Speak past the crowd, folks. Jesus has just learned what it means to die as a man. God had never done that. And as he's hanging on the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. I've been one of them. They really don't know what they're doing. This ain't easy. Jesus comes out of the tomb as the last Adam. God doesn't have another Adam. Okay? God's got a new creation on the earth, and all of you who believe in his name, to you he has given the authority to call yourselves what? Sons of God. Welcome to the family. You belong to the last Adam. Oh, that's good news. That's why John recreates the garden in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and word was with God, and word was God. He puts Jesus in the garden. He copies Genesis 1.1. He doesn't do that by accident. He does that on purpose. Because he wants you to know you live in a new creation. He wants you to know you're part of the last Adam. This is all good news. All of that for the word man in Zechariah 6.12. Behold the man who is the branch. From his place he shall branch out. And he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall set and rule on his throne. I love the fact that 13 ends with he shall build the temple of the Lord and 14 opens with he, yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. Zechariah wants to repeat it twice. God says to you, there's a man coming who shall branch out. And what he will do when he branches out is he will build his temple. Now, I don't know anybody in the eschatological world who is predicting that Jesus is going to come back and build a temple. And yet, according to Zechariah chapter 6, the man is going to build a temple. In case you missed it, he said it twice. Yes, the man is going to build his temple. Where does that fit in our timeline? Is that somewhere out in the future when Jesus comes back and builds a temple? I don't think so. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Mansions, Greek word monet, places to live, abodes. Deeper in the chapter, Jesus says, if man loves my father, my father loves him. He and I come and make our mansion inside of you. Say, I don't remember it saying mansion twice. It didn't. The translators lost their nerve. The second time, they didn't call it mansion. They call it abode. Abode. They cleaned it up because they didn't believe it's possible that the real mansion is not just over in the glory land. The real mansion sitting in that chair. Jesus said, my father and I are going to build a mansion inside of you, and dad and I like to live there. Paul grabs it. Paul's good at grabbing stuff. Paul grabs it and says, don't you know your body is the temple? temple. What temple? The one Jesus built. When did he build it? At the cross, at the resurrection, at Pentecost. And he's not done working on you. He shall build himself a house. Yes, he shall build himself a house. And it's you. And angels peer in in amazement because they've been up in his house, but they can't believe what he's doing in you. I mean it. They can't believe what he's doing in you. It's remarkable to see what is happening in you. The man is branching out, building a house. You know, everywhere you go, the man branches out. Everywhere you step your foot, the man steps his foot. When you open your mouth, the man opens his mouth. Jesus said the kingdom's like a man drops seed in the earth until a tree grows and its branches expand until the fowls of the air find rest in its branches. Old Testament fowls were always bad. They're always eating dead things. Jesus said you're going to be so powerful the kingdom will be like a tree and your branches will give rest to your enemies. Because everywhere you go will branch out. How is Jesus still branching? You. 
It's awesome. Everywhere you go, he's branching out. He's moving forward. We got we to gotta go, man. <laughs> Zechariah 11. Can I give you one of my favorites, man? I wrote a whole book on this. That book back there called Between the Pieces has a whole chapter called Can God Break Covenant? Snap answer from most Christians is no way. How can God break covenant? The Bible says he keeps his covenant and cannot break it. We deal with that in that chapter. That's from the book of Psalms. And the covenant in question was the covenant of David, where God said, I'll always keep a king on your throne, and I cannot break that. It is perpetual forever. And Jesus is the king on David's throne. So God kept his word. That's the only spot where we see God can't break covenant. But can God break covenant? Ooh. It opens up a big theological can of worms because, of course, we're in a new covenant. We don't want that one broken. Well, that one's called perpetual and never-ending in the New Testament. It's called everlasting. It goes on forever and forever and forever, and therefore you have the assurance. You have, the, you have what Hebrews called everlasting consolation, or what Romans rather called everlasting cons con consolation because you have an everlasting covenant confirmed by an everlasting spirit. Those three fall within like two verses in the book of Romans. Eternal. Eternal consolation, eternal spirit. And so, what about that old covenant? And, and was it just a fulfillment? Jesus goes to the cross and fulfills it. I, I, I don't, I'm not going to get deep into it. Get that, read that whole thing. But I, can't, I can never bring out grace in Zechariah without this. Zechariah chapter 11. Verse 10. I took my staff beauty and cut it in two that I might break the covenant that I made with all the people. Ooh, stop right there. Okay? If, if we can determine that this is about God and if we did the context and pretext, you would see the lead-in is the Lord speaking. But Isaiah's been told to make two staffs, one called beauty and one called bands, and God says take beauty and cut it in half because I'm going to break the covenant I made with all my people. So this is God speaking to Israel saying just as this Staff was just snapped in half, I'll break my covenant. However, God knows that he can't break his own rules. He can't just break covenant without there being a repercussion. Okay? Because actually, if you break covenant, you're supposed to die. So it was broken on that day. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And then I said to them, if it's agreeable to you, give me my wages. And if not, refrain. So they wait out for my wages... 30 pieces of silver. So God says, if you guys agree for me to break the covenant, the only way for me to break the covenant is you buy me out. So how much is it worth to you to get out of the covenant? And they counted out for me 30 pieces of silver. Now, if you've ever spent any time in the New Testament, you've seen this number before. Judas walks into the Pharisees and says, I'll buy you some time, get you some time with Jesus. I'll bring him to you. He won't come to you. I'll get him to you. I know where he's going to be. How much will you give me? And the Bible says, and they offered him 30 pieces of silver. They didn't offer him 30 pieces of silver because that's all the loose change they could find in the couch cushions of the temple. They offered him 30 pieces of silver because they knew the Torah and they knew the minor prophets and they knew Zechariah made a prophecy. That there could be the breaking of covenant for the price of 30 pieces of silver. And they offer it to Judas who takes the money, kisses Jesus. Jesus is delivered. When it is announced in the street that Jesus will be crucified, Judas runs back into the temple and he throws the 30 pieces of silver at the Pharisees. And he says, no, I didn't mean for him to die. And they say, that's too late. We can't spend that money. It's blood money. He said, so I'll tell you what we'll do with it. We'll go buy a potter's field so that we can bury the stranger. Where'd they come up with that idea? Look at the next verse. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. The princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Did you catch what just happened? God said, if you want out of the old covenant, you're going to have to buy me out because I can't get out of it. What's it worth to you? And they said 30 pieces of silver. And God caught the message. Because in Exodus chapter 21, the price of a wounded slave is 30 pieces of silver. If your ox gores your neighbor's servant, you shall pay unto your neighbor 30 pieces of silver. 
If your ox gores your neighbor's child, you shall pay whatever your neighbor demands. The price of your kid is much higher than the price of your slave. Guess how much they offered for Jesus? The ultimate servant. Jesus, the ultimate servant, goes to the cross for 30 pieces of silver. And when Jesus dies on Calvary, the old covenant got snapped in half. And and Hebrews chapter 8 closes with, that which is old is ready to vanish away. Why is it vanishing away? Because a tree snapped in half is dead. The leaves just haven't figured it out yet. And so there was a generation past the cross in which the old covenant was slowly fading away. That's the whole book of Hebrews is don't go back to that which is dying. Don't go back to that which is dying. Never go back to that which is where you were when you were dead. And so for you in grace, don't ever go back to might and power when you have grace, grace. That 11th chapter, that, if that doesn't sufficiently blow your mind, I have nothing left to blow your mind with. That's worth digging around in there for a little while. Zechariah 13, 7. Do you have time for one more? Well, look at 12, 10. I'll pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They'll look on me whom they pierced. That's a good one. The promise that Jerusalem would have the spirit of grace poured upon him. But I'll close in 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus goes to the garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. He looks to them and he says, as it is written in the scriptures, smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Tonight you shall all abandon me. Of course the disciples go, yeah, it's foolish, we're not going anywhere. Jesus was quoting Zechariah. Zechariah made a prophecy that said, awake sword and smite the shepherd. Jesus says, when it smites me, you guys will scatter. Did they? Yes. The back half of the prophecy we know was fulfilled. Was the first half of the prophecy? Awake sword and smite the shepherd. Why does it tell the sword to wake up? Because the sword has been asleep since the Garden of Eden. Where's the first time you see a sword in the Bible? This one's going to be fun to watch sink in. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they reject the tree of life, the one tree that would give them the consciousness of the Holy Spirit that they deserved as children of God. And the Bible says, and God placed a flaming sword above the tree of life that turned every which way so that no man could approach it and live. And that sword hides itself over the tree of life, keeping people from the life of God. And Jesus comes along and the sword wakes up. Jesus said they're going to smite the shepherd with it and the sheep are going to scatter. The sword that awoke smote the shepherd at the cross. The sword did not get replaced again over the tree to keep you out. In fact, the stone rolled away so that you could come in and realize that there's no one dead in there anymore. There's a new man on the earth, and you have access to the tree of life. Zachariah. (laughs) Come on, Zach. And angels wish to peer into these things, and you hold the honor today. Of not only peering into them, but knowing them. I've had the honor this morning of watching the Holy Spirit give multiple aha moments in the crowd. That is a joy that no man can generate. Aha moments in the spirit realm come directly into your heart. They just bypass your thinking and they jump straight into that heart. And you walk out and say, what a good God we serve. So you can leave this service this morning and forget the guy's name that showed you that. But you'll never forget what you were shown. Because that's revelation. And if you walk out today and you say, I don't know if he was a good preacher, but I know he showed me a good Jesus, then that's worth me getting on a plane going home for. Because the reality is it doesn't matter if we're a good preacher or a good expositor, as long as you leave and say, man, that was a good Jesus. What a good Jesus that we have. Grace, grace to it. Father, I thank you for this room, and I thank you for Pure Grace Church, and I thank you for all of these, your children, this morning. I look around and I watch the mighty spiritual impact you are having on your kids. I see that you are doing a work and in some cases I don't see anything but I believe the word is so powerful that there's a work being done. 
I think today, Father, we have been able to speak of things that angels wish they could peer into, things that amaze the hosts of the heavenlies, that the grace of God is not something new, but is something as old as time, that God himself had always had a plan, that there's a new man in the earth, that the sword has woke up, that the man has branched out, that mountains can come down through the cornerstone of grace, grace, (laughs) and that there's not an adversary left in our life that has the right to stand and accuse us if Jesus has given us robes of righteousness. And we get all of this from your glorious word, and there's so much more. So we thank you for exciting our hearts to search it out. And I'm excited about what you're going to show us next, because in you there is no clock. You are not concerned nor worried about it. And so I praise you, and I thank you, and I pray your favor and your blessing follow these your children and teach them how to scream grace grace at mountains and knock them down teach them how to step their foot and branch out teach them to stop idolizing a covenant that's been snapped in half and the leaves are dead show us your picture and your visage in the word we thank you and we praise you in jesus name and i pray for pastor justin i pray peace on him and his wife and his family i pray favor on this house on Pastor Ben, I pray that you anoint this union with peace and cohesiveness, that they continue to move forward as a unit, the body of Christ. There are hands and there are feet and there are arms and there are legs, but there is one head, and all we're doing is growing until we got shoulders big enough to hold that head. That head's name is Jesus, and you are the head of this house. And so, Father, continue to mold and shape and make us in this house. In your image, I leave my peace here. And until we meet again, in Jesus' name, if you accept and believe this this morning, say amen. Amen. God bless you, Pure Grace Church. Pray for us as we travel, flying home tonight, driving to Missouri next week, spend a week there, minister, see family, drive on to Georgia, start a new season in our life. We covet your prayers. We'll see you again, I hope, and I hope very soon. God bless you.